Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the July 13th, 2020 Major Mondays webinar. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing a topic uh, very near and dear to my heart, the New York Serious Injury Threshold. Uh, so without further ado, let's dive on in. Uh, as always, this is a uh, live session, so uh, question and answer portion at the end. Uh, you can see the box, how to type in your questions, uh, and if there are any at the conclusion, uh, we'll get to them. So where does the serious injury threshold come from? And um, any of you who have uh, subscribed to this webinar series might recall uh, one we did recently on the verbal threshold in New Jersey. Uh, this is sort of New York's analog to that, but uh, actually maybe a tad more complicated. So it comes from Article 51 of the New York Insurance Law. Uh, that's also known as the no-fault law. Uh, and the mandatory policy endorsements in New York, uh, those are found in 11 NYCRR Part 65. Uh, all of Article 51 applies to accidents arising from the use or operation of a motor vehicle in the state of New York. Uh, and it provides for first party benefits coverage, which includes something called basic economic loss. So here's what's available after a motor vehicle accident in New York. Uh, an eligible reci recipient, and we'll get into that in a moment, uh, recovers basic economic loss regardless of fault. They don't have to show negligence or serious injury. Uh, that's why it's no fault. Uh, they cannot recover basic economic loss from the tortfeasor. So uh, this is an insurance law section 5102. We have a definition of basic economic loss, combined medical treatment, lost earnings and other expenses of $50,000 or less, uh, lost wages up to 2K per month for not more than three years, uh, and other necessary expenses of $25 per day or less for one year. So who is eligible? A covered person under the no-fault law. And again, the accident must occur in the state of New York. Uh, and just a little side note here, a motorcycle is excluded from the definition of motor vehicle for the purposes of Article 51. So who pays in these situations? Uh, just This is just in terms of what carrier ends up on the hook because uh, it can get a little confusing. So generally the carrier for the driver slash passenger that insures the vehicle uh, they are in pays for no fault benefits. Um, for pedestrians, generally the vehicle which strikes them pays for the benefits. For bus passengers that are, not co that are covered by their own insurance, uh, their own insurance pays, and I'm talking about their own uh, PIP coverage, like their auto liability coverage, they will pay, not the bus company's carrier, uh, but if the passenger doesn't have coverage, then the bus company's carriers on the hook. Uh, in work-related accidents, the workers' comp carrier pays, as we all know. Uh, more on this in a moment. Uh, for out-of-state accidents, the host vehicle's carrier pays for the uh, insured and members of the household. These are your resident relatives. Uh, Non-household members are only covered if there is something called guest coverage on the policy. Uh, otherwise, benefits are paid under their own policy. And the implication there is if they don't have their own policy and they don't fall under guest coverage, they're not going to receive no-fault benefits. Uh, an out-of-state vehicle operating in New York, uh, the carrier must provide no-fault benefits if the insurance company does business in New York. And um, practically, that's going to be uh, almost all of these major carriers. So what about suing for a motor vehicle accident? And now we're tiptoeing around the serious injury threshold now. Um, 
Insurance Law Section 5104, an action by or on behalf of a covered person against another covered person uh, for personal injuries arising out of negligence in the operation of a motor vehicle in New York, there is no right of recovery for basic economic loss, right? That's that first 50,000 uh, in medical treatment and loss of earnings up to 2K per month for not more than three years. Uh, it means the parties cannot, or the injured party cannot sue for that amount. Um, Section 5102, which lists all the definitions, uh, also prohibits any right of recovery for non-economic loss, except in the case of a serious injury. So time for a little workers' comp sidebar. Uh, I'm gonna hearken back to the uh, inaugural Major Mondays webinar uh, back in January, 2020. Uh, it's a very interesting topic for workers' comp carriers, uh, no fault and uh, loss transfer how that 50K carve out applies to our section 29 rights, how we get that money back, et cetera. So uh, workers' comp benefits are primary to no fault in the state of New York. So this means the benefits paid by the carrier for workers' comp uh, are in lieu of first party benefits for the basic economic loss. Uh, what does that also mean? No subrogation on that first 50K paid in workers' comp benefits. And if you think about it practically, that makes sense and sort of jibes with the law. Uh, the plaintiff is not going to be able to sue for that first 50000 So why would we have the right to do that under subrogation? And this is where it gets kind of interesting uh, compared to New Jersey's verbal threshold, because uh, as we discussed in, in that webinar, uh, the New Jersey Supreme Court just said, no, nope, go ahead and do that. Uh, petitioner suit is barred by the verbal th threshold. Okay, well, ACRA is a separate and distinct statute from uh, the New Jersey Workers' Compact. So yeah, sure, the carrier can subrogate even if the petitioner can't. Um, well, that doesn't fly in New York. Uh, you can find this in section 29.1a and section 29.2a. It is literally in the subrogation statute. Uh, it says the carrier shall not have a lien on benefits paid in lieu of first party benefits, uh, and they can't sue to recover that first 50,000 except for intercompany loss transfer. So what are our categories of serious injuries? We have nine, death, dismemberment, fracture, loss of fetus, significant disfigurement, permanent loss of use of a body, organ, member, function, or system, uh, permanent consequential limitation of a body, organ, or member, uh, significant limitation of a body, function, or system, and the so-called 9180 category. Uh, has to be a medically determined uh, impairment and the plaintiff has to be disabled uh, for at least 90 days of the first 180 days immediately following the accident. <clears throat> so the serious injury threshold itself bars suits for non-economic loss. This is essentially more often than not going to be your pain and suffering, uh, unless the party has one of those nine injuries I just listed. Uh, the threshold is going to apply for an in-state accident. Um, a New York covered plaintiff does not need to satisfy the threshold and can recover basic economic loss from the defendant where the accident occurs outside the state of New York. Uh, we did address this a little more in depth in the January webinar, the McHenry case and its progeny. Um, and the threshold applies when we have that in-state accident and there is a claim against a covered person under the statute. Uh, the plaintiff can recover pain and suffering as well as medical expenses, lost wages, and other expenses that exceed basic economic loss. So you can get that lost earnings and that reimbursement for medical treatment, but only for the amounts that exceed that 50K for the initial basic economic loss. 
So how does this threshold apply practically? So the plaintiff gets to plead and prove special damages to show the seriousness of their injury, uh, but they still can't recover for medical loss wages or expenses unless it exceeds basic economic loss. Uh, the serious injury threshold is going to come up most often in a motion for summary judgment and that trial. Uh, in almost all motor vehicle accident cases, if this is not apparent, it's going to come up in a summary judgment motion from the defendants. Uh, once any one category under Section 5102 is satisfied, the case is good to go. All other injuries are allowed in. Uh, so conceivably, you could get in on a pinky toe fracture uh, and have all of your uh, soft tissue injuries to your neck and back uh, still fall within your third party action. Um, the operator and pa or passenger of a motor vehicle does not need to satisfy the threshold to recover pain and suffering, but a covered person suing a motor vehicle still has to satisfy the threshold. Uh, a claim against the non-covered person, so that's our defendant, the tortfeasor, does not require the plaintiff to meet the threshold and the plaintiff can sue for basic economic loss. Uh, what does that mean? There's also liens on that recovery for the no-fault carrier under Section 5104B and, uh, yes, for the workers' comp carrier under Section 29.1A, 2A, and um, Section 5104. So, the specifics of the injuries. We're going to look at those nine categories a little more in depth. Uh, fracture means any fracture. Like I just mentioned, that uh, pinky toe will uh, get you in the door, and believe it or not, we have had one of those before. Uh, any fracture, even if it's very minor, is enough, uh, except for teeth. Uh, but the fracture need not be permanent. And when I say except for teeth, uh, that can qualify as a fracture, having these chipped or dented teeth, but generally there needs to be um, some sort of uh, sequelae or, or consequences flowing from the chipped tooth. Uh, so in other words, it can't just be, hey, look, this is kind of unsightly. Uh, you know, there needs to be some sort of impact on the plaintiff's life or maybe some sort of permanency to the condition. It can't be remedied. Uh, something that takes it beyond just a mere chipped tooth. Significant disfigurement. Uh, the standard is somewhat heartless, but, um, you know, the language is nonetheless interesting. Uh, so it must be regarded as unattractive, objectionable, or the object of pity or scorn. Uh, that's from the Sermons versus Mana case from 2002. Uh, it also does not need to be permanent. Uh, permanent loss of use of a body, organ, member, function, or system. Uh, this need not be significant or consequential, but it must be a total loss of use. Uh, this means that with neck and back injuries, if you're plotting your course as a plaintiff, it's probably better to go with the permanent consequential category or the significant limitation category, uh, and we'll get into that in a moment, why that's probably sounder litigation strategy. Uh, it's permissible for a plaintiff to recover future pain and suffering, uh, even where the category satisfied is temporary. So they have that fracture in the past as a result of the accident, uh, and maybe they heal from that, but, um, you know, it continues, they continue to have pain and suffering from the other injuries that maybe wouldn't have qualified. They can still recover for those. It's, you think of the serious injury threshold as a gatekeeper to the survivability of the case itself. <clears throat> so the permanent consequential category, uh, as I just mentioned, you can use this one for neck, back, or other injuries. 
Uh, a herniation or a bulge is usually not going to be enough, uh, absent a greater showing. Uh, and there's just across the different cases out there on the topic, um, there's essentially eight showings that the courts have arrived on for uh, sustaining under this category. Uh, it's got to be permanent. There has to be some kind of consequential limitation, uh, qualitative or quantitative. Uh, there has to be objective evidence of the injury, but not necessarily of the restrictions themselves that come from the injury. Uh, there's got to be a recent exam, so permanent means permanent. Uh, there's got to be some curtailment of activities, uh, and this is not the same as the 9180 category. You just need to show a consequential interference with the plaintiff's life. Uh, there needs to be an explanation of the treatment rendered, uh, an explanation of any gaps in treatment. So that's approximately 15 months, which would be uh, the no-fault benefit cutoff, uh, and the plaintiff needs some reasonable explanation for that and uh, an explanation of all prior and subsequent similar injuries. The significant limitation category. Uh, same requirements as for the permanent consequential limitations that we just went over, uh, except medical permanency is not required. So for the purposes of the standard, significant is the same as consequential. Um, frequently used by plaintiffs for neck, back, and other such soft tissue injuries, uh, they also must show the duration of the injury, and this goes toward the issue of significance itself. The 9180 category, uh, the hotly litigated catch-all. Uh, so there must be a medically determined impairment uh, resulting in the plaintiff being disabled for 90 days in the first 180 days following the accident. This has to prevent the plaintiff from performing substantially all of the material acts which constitute such person's usual and customary daily activities. So permanency is not needed, but unlike with the prior two categories, the plaintiff does have to show uh, an inability to engage in substantially all usual and customary activities in their life. This is a tougher standard. Uh, the restrictions can occur for any 90 days during the 180 day period, meaning it doesn't have to start as the date of loss. Five days in, you know, those restrictions can start to set in. Um, it doesn't have to be right away as long as it's within that first 180 days uh, and we have that 90 days together. Um, <clears throat> objective evidence is required. Here we're talking about your diagnostic tests or your exams from your doctors with the findings listed. Uh, it need not be consequential uh, and the category can actually be satisfied even if the plaintiff returns to work but cannot perform their usual job. Uh, this is actually true even if the plaintiff returns within the first 90 days, uh, as long as all substantially, as long as substantially all the other activities in that plaintiff's life are curtailed. So a return to work under this category is not necessarily fatal. So I mentioned earlier uh, the practical effect of this serious injury threshold is our old friend, the summary judgment motion. So uh, the making of this motion is gonna suspend discovery unless there is a court order to the contrary. Um, if you're a plaintiff going to oppose one of these motions filed by the defendant, a proper op opposition is gonna have certain components. That's gonna include a plaintiff affidavit from the injured party themselves, an attorney affirmation, a doctor affirmation slash affidavit. Uh, note for you comp carriers out there, um, unlike how we can get saddled with uh, disability findings from a chiropractor. 
uh, plaintiff can't rely on that affirmation um, to defend against the summary judgment motion. Chiropractor is insufficient for that. Uh, and a memorandum of law. Uh, there must be an actual signature from the doctor. Uh, it can't be computerized or stamped. Uh, and this is just a general tip for any cases that are going to involve uh, medical findings. Uh, diagnostic studies, MRIs, x-rays, things of that nature, uh, they're inadmissible unless they're certified. Um, and they must be certified unless the defendant is the first to use it in the motion. So uh, just as a general rule, summary judgment evidence must be admissible at trial. So this goes for the party making the motion too. So the issue with these diagnostic test certifications, practically that means you should work on getting them uh, as soon as possible during the case to avoid issues opposing the motion later. You know, your nightmare scenario uh, as a plaintiff is getting hit with that summary judgment motion uh, and scrambling to get a hold of the facility that um, had the MRI or the X-ray performed and, uh, you know, having a radiologist certify to it. Uh, that can be a headache, so best practices is to kind of get that going ahead of time. Um, unsworn reports can't be used, but uh, an adversary's doctor's unsworn report and no-fault doctor reports can be used. Uh, what's a no-fault doctor report? Basically, no-fault benefits IME. So if you're trying to cut off medical treatment during that first 50K, that basic economic loss, uh, you are allowed under the no-fault law, uh, the carrier is allowed to get an IME, almost as if it was a worker's comp claim. Uh, the strategy for the plaintiff is to use as many categories as possible to meet that threshold. Uh, plaintiff should be checking to see if the motion for summary judgment was timely filed uh, and should possibly consider a cross motion on liability to leverage uh, maybe a better settlement out of this uh, or get the defendants to the table at least. Uh, there's a 120-day time limit after the filing of a note of issue, so that's the completion of discovery generally in uh, the civil case uh, to make the filing for the motion for summary judgment. Uh, the cross motion, if you think about it, is also a motion for summary judgment, so that also has to be timely. Uh, you also need to make sure you have strict compliance with expert disclosure, uh, but this is also not necessarily fatal. Uh, the defendant has to prove a uh, prima facie case of no serious injury, uh, and they have to address each and every injury category raised by the plaintiff. This is why throw it at the wall and see what sticks is the general strategy for these plaintiffs. Uh, the defendant papers also have to be uh, proper. So what are some issues that can pop up for uh, making this prima facie case? Uh, and this is not an exhaustive list. This is just some of the things that pop up the most often. Uh, the IME that the defendants get has to examine the plaintiff in person. The exam has to include all body parts. Uh, otherwise, the part that's excluded, you can't make a prima facie case for. The IME has to actually review the plaintiff's records. Uh, it has to include a review of objective findings and uh, list out the tests performed. Uh, it has to compare range of motion findings to normal range of motion findings. Uh, if the IME disputes uh, or does not dispute that there's a serious injury, well, then obviously that's fatal to the defendant's motion. Uh, conflicting findings of restricted range of motion or normal range of motion between the defendant's doctors, uh, that's going to be an issue if you get that no-fault IME and then you get a liability IME and they're saying two different things. Uh, 
An IME held after 90 days is too late to refute that 9180 category. Um, pleadings not attached to the motion as required by CPLR 3212, uh, that's going to be uh, fatal to the motion. Uh, an IME not being sworn or signed, as we already mentioned. Uh, if the motion's not made within 120 days, the note of issue, as we already mentioned. Uh, no prima facie raised by the defendant on prior or subsequent injuries is going to be a problem. Uh, and if the defendant does have a prima facie case, uh, the plaintiff can still survive summary judgment by saying that there are questions of fact on the serious injury. That's really all they need to uh, get past that initial threshold. So now we'll get to the questions portion of this. I know the material towards the end there got a little dense, but uh, let's see if anyone has any inquiries for us. And I am not seeing any questions. So with that, we're gonna wrap up the July 2020 uh, Major Mondays webinar. Uh, thanks as always everyone for joining uh, and I hope to see you next month.